0: Dr. Ronald Epstein is a family physician, palliative care physician, author, musician, researcher, and an internationally recognized expert on mindfulness in medicine. He's the subject of a humanities profile published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. The article is written by Dr. Miriam Shukman, who's both a psychiatrist and journalist. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, a guest host today on the CMAJ podcast. I'm an internist in Winnipeg and former associate dean at the University of Manitoba. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my friend, Dr. Ronald Epstein. I've reached him in Rochester, New York. Ron, welcome.
1: Pleased to be here with you, Jillian.
0: So, Ron, anyone who knows you knows that you are a very intriguing person. You have a degree in medicine, but you also have a degree in music. And at one point, you considered becoming a monk. Could you tell me a bit about that first attraction that you had to Zen meditation and how you ended up merging these two seemingly different paths?
1: Well, this goes actually way back to uh, when I was much younger. Um, When I was a child, I had asthma. And in the 50s and early 60s, there weren't a lot of medications that one could use. Um, And I discovered just, I can't quite figure out how I discovered this, that if I could lie very, very still, and regulate my breathing so that I would breathe quite shallowly, almost to the point of feeling a little bit uh, hypoxic, that I could suppress the urge to cough and, and I would feel a greater sense of calm and a less sense of a desperation of gasping for air. So that was probably when I was seven or eight years old. And, mm-hmm. and, um, in a way that, um, that physical, that bodily experience, um, stayed with me so that when, uh, in the late sixties and early seventies, when people were experimenting with meditation and other Eastern approaches to, um, awareness, uh, that it struck a chord with me. And, uh, mm-hmm. I had a friend whose older brother had been a Zen student at a Zen monastery for a while, and he taught me how to do Zen meditation. And, uh, and for me, it stuck. It, it, it was a way of reconnecting with, uh, who I was as a person and um, feeling a sense of presence, a sense of attentiveness. Uh, And at that time I was quite seriously studying music and it struck me that that state of mind was was the same state of mind that I experienced when I was truly present as a performer and uh, that I could cultivate that state of mind in in more than one way. I left college, as you mentioned, for a while to become a Zen student uh, that was just a few months, but it was a very important few months for me because I was able to immerse myself in meditation practice and, and learn a bit more about who I was as a person and what the potential one could achieve. So that was the Zen and music connection. Uh, the Zen and medicine connection happened much later. Uh, I went to medical school. I continued my meditation practice, but it was largely a private thing, something I did in my private life. And uh, only after I had been in practice for probably close to 10 years that I realized that when I was practicing at my best, I also had this sense of awareness and presence and what the Zen Buddhists call beginner's mind, a a kind of openness, uh, receptivity. Uh, And then that, that connection became real to me. I just realized that all of these things I'd been doing in life had a thread that ran through them.
0: So not long after that, you wrote an article in 1999 for JAMA that ended up shaping the rest of your life. Could you tell us a bit about that article?
1: Yeah, I I was very much involved in medical education in the 90s. I I directed the medical student programs here at the University of Rochester, and uh, I was thinking about what comprises a competent or proficient or expert clinician. And and this was a very real question because we were trying to evaluate whether our new curriculum was successful or not. and I realized that fairly early on that the ability to fill in the right answers on a multiple choice test you know that was maybe a small part of the picture but certainly wasn't the whole picture um, that technical skills weren't the whole picture either. Uh, even things like clinical judgment and clinical reasoning were important but not the whole picture and it seemed to me that the clinicians who were practicing at their best also had a kind of self-awareness and ability to attend to the right things and to be present. And so I, I wrote an article about that. It was kind. Of, it was a per, personal manifesto uh, about what I thought was important in medical practice, and sent it to JAMA, thinking that there wasn't a chance at all that they would accept it. And in fact, it by chance landed in on the desk of someone who was. In, incredibly interested and inspired and helped craft that article into what was ultimately published in 1999. And so for that, I'm very grateful. Uh, And then once the article was published, I received lots of correspondence from people in all fields of medicine, not just family medicine or psychiatry, but um, surgeons, pathologists, radiologists, who said, yes, this is what the practice of medicine is about. And for me that was life-changing. I realized that that this connection I had made was not only important to me, but was important to lots of people.
0: Thinking back, Ron, it's been almost 20 years since that article was published. What have you noticed in terms of the response to that article when it initially came out compared to how people are still responding to it now? What What's different?
1: Well, what's different now is that everyone has some idea about what mindfulness is it's been Mm -hmm. in the media it's uh you know time magazine the new york times uh the toronto star i mean there have been articles uh, about mindfulness everywhere and including about mindfulness and healing and mindfulness and medicine Uh, To a lesser extent, mindfulness for clinicians, but even that has exploded. About three-quarters of medical schools have some kind of mindfulness program available to medical students or residents. And 20 years ago, uh, people barely knew what the word was. So it's been a really major social change.
0: Was that unimaginable to you 20 years ago, that this could be everywhere in medical education? Or is it more something that you could see coming?
1: Oh, boy. Uh, (laughs) I'm not really good at predicting the future, so (laughs) I don't know if any of us are, but um, um, I could imagine it, but it was more in the realm of um, creative imagination as opposed Mm -hmm. to thinking that the world would change quite in the way that it has. Yeah,
0: You know, I have to say when I look at the timeline of how things unfolded, for me, it Strikes me that it, the outcome was the best case scenario, you know, to to do this work twenty years ago and now to see it have evolved into mainstream practice. It I'm, I would imagine it must be incredibly gratifying. It's a, also
1: it's gratifying not so much a personal level, but in a sense that, that there's now a community mm-hmm. uh, of people, a worldwide community. I mean, I've got very close colleagues here in Rochester, Nick Craster, um Fred Marshall, and others and and then people like you who've done work with us and people across the globe so it's a sense that uh it's not just me this is really taken off and has a life of its own
0: Mm -hmm. so ron what aspects of meditation do you bring to medicine that help you be the kind of doctor that you would want caring for you
1: I distill this down to a few qualities. Um the first is is intention, that is having a clear sense of what your goals, your values, what's important to you in life. So for me as a clinician, uh I'll just talk about me as personally at this phase in my life, something that's really important is not to live a disconnected life, to feel a life that's that's connected, that has whole. Uh I know a lot of doctors, and I used to, uh leave large parts of themselves in the parking lot when they come to work. Uh, maybe it's their sense of humor or their sense of caring or uh, or what, whatever it is. And I think that even though the work environment is quite different than the home environment, we can bring more of ourselves to work. The second part is is what you attend to, what you choose to consider important. In medicine, we tend to be trained that objective information is more important than subjective information. So what you see on a scan or a blood test takes precedence over what patients say about how they feel, and mm-hmm. especially in the emotional realm. Doctors tend to pay attention to physical things as opposed to emotional things. So so, I mean, all these are choices, of course. You can make a choice about where to place your attention, and, and mindfulness practice helps train you to be aware of how you're paying attention to things and how you can change that. The next part is curiosity, and I've been in practice, in the same practice, for 34 years and have had some of the same patients for that time, and maintaining an attitude of newness, of curiosity, that something new could happen in this visit that hasn't happened in the past, maintaining this sense of wonder and interest, Um, and I'd like my doctor to be curious about my life experience and attend to the right things and have a sense of integrity and wholeness. Um, The next piece is, I think I mentioned before, beginner's mind, the ability to um, see familiar things with new eyes, the ability to hold these contradictions that all humans contain in a way that you don't feel that you need to resolve them. You can understand the ambiguities and, and the ambivalence that people experience when they get ill. Uh, and then the final piece is, is presence, and that in in a way, that's the most important that um, and you know when musicians are present, right? You know, mm-hmm. when they're not. you know, because they're not present, you're not present. You're not enjoying the performance. It feels like they're just kind of going through the motions. And we all, you know, at have times when we feel like we're going through the motions, and that's not satisfying to anybody. So this ability to cultivate a sense of presence is is really key.
0: So, Ron, you've become a leading voice on doctor-patient communication. Could you tell us about the time in the mid-90s when you were studying how doctors assess HIV risk and the realizations that you had at that time?
1: Yeah, um, I'm I'm interested in communication about difficult things. So HIV seemed to embody all of that. uh, You had to talk about sexual behavior, drug use, uh, sexual orientation, stigmatization, um, uh, death and dying, uh, and especially uh, before the mid 90s uh, before it was really effective treatment and and I had a fairly large cohort of HIV infected patients starting in my residency and going going forward. So I, I did a study in which I tried to understand why doctors and patients didn't talk about important things like sexual risk behavior uh, and and of course, that is key it's, it's 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 essential in order to prevent hiv transmission and uh we all know that and so I, I got a bunch of doctors to agree to be videotaped when they were seeing patients who had indicated on a survey that they had some hiv risk behaviors uh, and those could be sexual risk or drug use or what what have you. um And what I noticed was that there were all sorts of missed opportunities or doctors tripping over their words or feeling flustered, uh, using euphemisms, choosing the wrong moment to ask questions, like when you're doing a genital exam, you don't ask about sexual behavior. But what was even more notable to me was as part of the study, we showed these videotapes back to physicians uh, and to see if they could identify these communication barriers and they found this stunning. They found that um, things that completely evaded their awareness in the moment were perfectly obvious to them viewing a videotape of their own uh, performance in a clinical encounter. And for me, that galvanized my interest in physician self-awareness, that if you could bring that awareness that you had during the videotape to when you were actually with a patient, then things would probably go better. And although communication training has largely centered around behavioral things, I came to this realization that, of course, many people in in the past had, Michael Ballins and others, um, that self-awareness is really one key element of learning to communicate effectively.
0: Ron, if we think back to 1999 when you published that first article, what do you see as the most urgent thing that has changed in the culture of medicine today in terms of things that physicians themselves can begin to address?
1: I think that the the biggest disconnect now is, um, or the biggest change is a disconnect between physicians' aspirations. That is why they really went to medical school, the things they find most compelling about their work, and what physicians find themselves doing in their everyday work. We know that doctors spend half of their time or more in front of a computer screen, often filling out check boxes. Um, and I've asked now probably a hundred different audiences if the reason they went to medical school was to fill out check boxes on an electronic health record, um, <laughs> and I don't think anyone's raised
0: their hand yet. So
1: <laughs> it's just a, probably an informal survey of you know several thousand people. Yet we find ourselves doing all of these alienating uh, activities during our everyday work. And we understand what all the pressures are, the administrative pressures and mandates and bureaucratic things. But this is a huge problem that, uh, in a way, the real patient, as Abram Berghese said in one of his articles recently, the real patient's on the screen and mm. the person in the bed is just an appendage. That is not sustainable. And medicine is so difficult. It's such a difficult profession that we need a sense of of purpose and meaning in our work. And if your purpose and meaning is finding the right billing category for a patient, I don't know if that's the same problem in Canada as it is in the U.S. <laughs> um, but that is you know, that kind of sucks the life out of you know your work. You begin thinking about patients as work units as opposed to people, yeah. and so that sense and that I think underlies a lot of the burnout that physicians are experiencing now. You know, doctors have always worked hard, but now the work just lacks a certain amount of meaning. I think at the root, that's probably the I mean, yes, there are productivity pressures, there are you know various other things, but um I think this is an important concern.
0: Ron, one thing I've noticed and I know you have experienced as well Sometimes physicians are struggling so deeply with those system issues, as you just described, the, the electronic medical record and the, um, the structural and organizational problems that they face. And sometimes it can be hard for people to get past those challenges to see how mindfulness or other personal initiatives can be impactful. Could you talk for a moment about how anyone who's recognizes themselves in that description, might find a mindful practice program helpful?
1: I think that by learning to be mindful, you reconnect yourself with the things that are important to you and begin to um, disassociate your identity as a healer from those activities that sap your identity. So yes, you still have to do some of the same mechanical things, but it doesn't take over your life quite in the same way. Mm-hmm. And under if, under the best of circumstances, it energizes you to think about, well, how can I change that? How can I be part of a process of change for the positive? So uh, we've found in you know people who've completed some of our trainings or workshops that they go back to the workplace with a fresh perspective about what's really most important, where they're going to place their, their, the majority of their attention. And to try to find a way to be more present with colleagues and patients, I'll just say one one thing that I learned uh, or one one action, for example, that i that I undertook when I realized that uh, that this was eroding in my sense of purpose was to declare that to myself that the first two minutes of every visit with every patient would be a computer free zone. Mm. Now, two minutes may not sound like a real lot, but most patients can get, can say what they're most concerned about within a, a minute and a half or so. But also, I realized that at the beginning of every encounter with a patient, I'm giving myself a gift and I'm giving the patient a gift. Mm-hmm. I was afraid that that was going to, you know, lead to patients talking endlessly or not finishing their notes until midnight. But the, exactly the opposite has happened. I, Patient and I end up getting to what's the heart of the matter more quickly. Uh, and we both leave the visit feeling more satisfied. I should take a step back. This was precipitated by a patient who I'd known for a couple of decades and taken care of her, who said to me in, in a visit, um, "You know, I really have enjoyed being a patient of yours, but I just don't feel that you're as present now that you're, this new electronic medical record is there." That just mm-hmm. struck me right in the heart. It just wow. was like saying, it was this sense of having failed, my patients and fi- having failed myself uh and I just tried to think tried to come up with simple things that could try to um, change that and and this was one there are other things that i i I undertook, but this was one, and I think that everyone can do that quite doable
0: mm-hmm. you've written a book about mindfulness in medical practice called attending, and as you know, many uh, other physicians worldwide have been deeply affected by this book and have also continued to spread your message. Why do you think this message is resonating so deeply right now for doctors today?
1: People go into medicine who generally are hard workers, who have a vision of helping humanity. And a lot of people feel that they've lost their way or that they've found their way but feel alone uh, and don't have the support that they need and the acknowledgement. In the book I chose to, this is the first book I wrote for a more general audience, and in academic articles you write about theories and principles and occasionally use a patient experience as an example, or an experience of a physician as an example. But um, in this book, I decided to turn that completely around and start with stories and and real compelling stories as part of my um, life as a clinician and a teacher and a researcher and draw out from those stories uh, principles of how to approach difficult circumstances in medicine more mindfully. And I think it's the use of stories that has captivated People who tend not to read and resonate with the kind of writing that you often find in medical journals. I guess this is a plug for medical journals having a better balance between uh, the experience of populations as captured in statistics on the one hand and the experience of living, breathing human beings with all of their messiness and ambiguity. I'm thinking of a quote. There's a story called uh, A Country Doctor by, by by Kafka, a rather odd story. But there's one line in there that, that just always sticks with me, which is um, to write prescriptions is easy. To come to an understanding with other people is difficult. Mm-hmm. I think eventually all of us find that the difficult parts of medicine have to do with relating with other people. Mm-hmm. and And so I think in the book I've tried to bring that to life. Mm -hmm. And uh, with some unvarnished and somewhat raw accounts of things that don't always go well in medical practice.
0: Ron, as you know, I've had the chance to come down several times now uh, to work with you and uh, Mick and Fred at Chapin Mill. And I I wonder if you could speak for a moment about what it's meant to you in your career to see groups of physicians coming together now from all over the world to come and sit with you and learn mindful practice?
1: I feel in these workshops, um, I judge my, our success, our collective success, by the degree to which we create a learning community in which everyone is learning from one another and also learning from themselves. So as a teacher, I see my role as fa- as being a facilitator, a guide, opening doors. Uh, and the joy that I get in watching people discover things about themselves, about the world that they uh, occupy, and through that discovery, sharing the wisdom that they gain from their own self-discovery with others. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm teaching people to be mindful. I don't think you can teach someone to be mindful. You can teach someone to meditate or you can show them the way, but really it's it's something that people discover that's already inside them, that's ready to blossom, ready to flourish. And watching this happen, being a witness, uh, is for me, it's stunning. It's beautiful. It's it's exquisite.
0: Well, on a personal note, I have to say that Coming down to Chapin Mill has been a a transformative experience that has achieved all of those things for me, built community and uh, allowed things that were already there more time to grow. But not everyone is going to be able to come and work with you in Chapin Mill. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about how physicians go about building this kind of community of practice when they're interested in mindfulness, but Unsure who around them may share the same interests and desire for a community.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, the first thing that I, I try to do is to put those opportunities to make those opportunities more public. So, so that that I do through writing uh, and writing in medical journals, writing books, podcasts, you know, whatever, whatever medium uh, one one can use. So that even someone who is isolated in practice by themselves in a place where they don't know anybody who shares their deepest aspirations, uh, to recognize that there is this global community and there are people who are supporting those efforts. I think mindfulness takes practice. Uh, it's not something that you you know do a weekend workshop and then you're suddenly mindful. You know, it's it's a vector. It's mm-hmm. heading towards something, and and. Um, It's not a state that you achieve. And one simple practice that every clinician can undertake is to think about that moment, that transitional moment between patients. So you're seeing a patient in one room and you're going to another room to see another patient. Um, Or if you're a surgeon, you finished an operation in one room and you go into another room. And usually there's a door handle or a doorknob. And I use the door handle as as a... as a touchdown, I just—I touch the door handle, I take a breath, mentally, both experience and set aside the experience that I've just had with the previous patient or colleague. So I, I kind of immerse myself in that prior experience for a moment, kind of, and then um, imagine that there's a that there's a shelf next to me. I just take that experience and rest it gently on the shelf there. I'm not throwing it out, but it's still. It's still accessible, but it's not something that I need to carry with me into mm-hmm. the next room. And with that breath, I feel like i been able to establish a sense of presence and attentiveness and also an openness to surprise so that the next patient that I see uh, gets my full attention. So this takes, you know, a second. Mm-hmm. No one needs to know what you're doing. But if you're a doctor and you see, let's say, um, you know, let's say you see 100 patients in a week, uh, and and you do this with every patient, then you practice this mindfulness technique a hundred times in a week. And if you work for 40 weeks a year, let's say, then you've done it 4,000 times. And uh, if you do it for five years, then that's 20,000 times. And anything that you do 20,000 times, you begin to get good at. Mm-hmm. And And then it begins to be a skill that you can do when you go home or you're in other social <laughs> interactions. It's something that, that you can learn to bring to your life in other places that it might be useful. And there are a whole bunch of other exercises that one can do during the workday uh, that we emphasize in our training uh, as much as learning meditation. You know, meditation's great. I've done this for, you know, 45 years. Um, it's been very useful for me. But if all you learn is how to sit quietly on a cushion and watch your breath, and you can't bring that into your everyday life, I, I don't feel feel that, at least for someone who lives in the world and not as a monk, I, feel, I don't feel that you've really achieved the goals of being mindful.
0: Ron, could you tell us where anyone listening to this podcast can go to find out more about your work?
1: Probably the easiest entree uh, is my website, which is just my name, ronaldepstein.com. Uh, and that will have links to readings and workshops and various other resources. The website for our Mindful Practice programs uh, is uh, mindfulpractice.urmc.edu. Uh, so that's that will give you a more direct link to specific programs.
0: So, Ron, I've been writing a column for CMHA blogs where our students across Canada write into me as a former associate dean about the things that are causing them stress and distress and the challenges that they are facing as medical students. And we know, you and I both know as medical educators, that our students are really struggling with retaining and finding their humanity in medicine for all the reasons that we've been discussing. So if you could give one practical takeaway message to medical students, residents and early career physicians or just colleagues looking to be more intentional and present and human with their patients, what would you say to them?
1: I, um, I, I, I'm going to say this, but I don't want it to sound trite. Um, because I think many people have said it before, which is, uh, to thine own self be true. Uh, But I don't think it's very easy to do that uh, unless you feel that you have a sense of community. I mean, there are extraordinary people in the world who have been able to do that, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, people of that stature who have an, an extraordinary ability to maintain a sense of self and purpose and truth. Uh, throughout their lives. But I think most of us are a bit more fragile than that. So I would say to really actively seek out those things and those people in your life that are life-affirming and gravitate towards them. I I feel that I've been fortunate uh, that in in my life as a musician, I had many such people, and I carried those friendships with me through medical school, and they were quite sustaining until I could develop similarly deep relationships with other people in medicine. So it's, again, a plug for starting medical school when you're a little bit more mature, when you've taken some time off, when you have mature friendships uh, that will sustain you and remind you of who you are. Um, I know you said one thing, but I've already told you two, and I'll give you one more. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, actually, I'll give you two more. The third is to find something to practice. Okay, so that, um, that practice could be the doorknob thing that I just mentioned. The practice could be, um, every time you see someone with whom you have some difficulty practicing finding something that you have in common, uh, even though it could be something as basic as, you know, just like me, this person experiences suffering and pain uh, and just some way to establish a human connection in the midst of adversity. So, that, mm-hmm. that, so that's the third message is find a practice. Um, and the fourth message is um, uh, to consciously uh, seek positivity. Um, there's research on. Uh, writing down things that you're grateful for mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. seem to not only improve mood but also physical health and engagement with the world uh, in a positive way, compassion, etc. So, so uh, now I don't want this to sound Pollyannish. That medicine is in deep trouble. People are very distressed. The values have gone astray. Um, and there are insufficient efforts on a systemic level to fix all of that, so we're 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 working in pretty murky waters, uh, which makes holding that murkiness in one hand and holding the positivity in another hand uh, especially important, so you can actually look at the murkiness and not feel overwhelmed by it because you know that you're capable of uh, seeing. The positive, the beautiful, the wonderful uh, in the world that we that we inhabit.
0: Well, Ron, I think that's a great note for us to end on today. I know I'm speaking for many, many people when I thank you and your colleagues for bringing this work into the mainstream. It has had a impact that's almost indescribable on my clinical practice and the clinical practice and personal lives of so many others that I know and have come to know through your work
1: this work in helping medicine be more mindful and physicians being more mindful um is something that no one individual can do it's really a work of of teams and communities and i guess a word of thanks to you for being part of that community and and for uh helping uh me and others uh realize what's important in medicine thank you
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Ronald Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a family physician, palliative care physician, and a professor of medicine at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. The name of his book is Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity, and it is published by Scribner. To read the Humanities Profile article about Dr. Epstein written by Dr. Miriam Schuckman, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, guest host for CMAJ Podcasts. Thanks for listening.